Hey, this is Andrew Blumenfeld, and you're listening to the Money in Politics podcast. You may know that in addition to this podcast, we also create a software that Democrats use to help them fundraise. It's called Call Time AI. I mention it because our topic today has a lot to do with some of the underlying work that goes into Call Time AI. You probably are aware that data, big data, the use of that data, terms like machine learning, artificial intelligence, they get tossed around a lot in politics these days. And indeed, at Call Time AI, that AI stands for artificial intelligence, and we rely on the collection and use of big data sets and then the analysis and machine learning and artificial intelligence on top of those big data sets to help our users improve their fundraising. But all of these claims about data and data science, they can feel a little overblown sometimes. I certainly understand that. It's also not just in politics, I should add. There are some studies that suggest that the U.S. is on track right now to have over one million unfilled data scientist jobs because the demand for data science and engineering is so great, but the skill that it takes to actually deliver on its promise is actually kind of hard to find. And so if you have skepticism about all those claims out there, I don't blame you, but I think that that skepticism should cause us to dig in and learn a little bit more, not just turn away from it. And actually, that's what today's conversation is all about. My background is in political fundraising, not data science. And nevertheless, one of the reasons why we built Call Time AI was because I felt we were sitting as fundraisers on a lot of data. There was a lot of data available to us, and we were generating a lot of data But it didn't feel like it was very actionable data. It didn't feel like there was a way to collect that data in a systemic way that we could then use to improve our fundraising. But to actually power that data engine, we rely on the leadership and skill of my fellow co-founder of Call Time AI, Adam Boaz Becker, a brilliant data engineer. Adam allows us to approach fundraising through the lens of data science. That's no small task, especially when you're doing it right. So I am going to chat with Adam about how he approaches the question of data in politics and fundraising and also the challenges and opportunities that are there. And I suppose there are times where our conversation gets just a tad bit technical, but my background is not very technical. So stick with me and I think we'll have a very interesting conversation. Today's episode is brought to you by Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Call Time AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. Well, hey, Adam, thanks so much for joining us. It's really exciting to be talking with you today. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for doing this. Of course. Yeah. Well, obviously, you and I know one another quite well, but our listeners probably don't know much about you. So why don't we start with having you introduce yourself, tell folks what your role is as a co-founder, as the lead of our data work here at CallTime AI. And let's just start there. Let's just tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you do with CallTime. Yeah, sure. I'm on the data side of call time. I actually, I started out by, by studying astrophysics, and I spent a few years studying and researching and, and publishing in that area. And then after Trump got elected in 2016, I decided I got to be a little bit more involved in, in the political orbit. So I 
it was a fairly gradual process, but I, I began to be gravitated towards that area. And I wanted to do something that catered to, to my background in a way that sort of made sense. I'd worked on some startups with some political and social mission previously, but nothing squarely in the political space. And I think that was around the time I met you. And you introduced me to some of your own frustrations with, with fundraising. And it, it, it seemed to be a natural fit. And the problem that I sort of introduced you to in that moment was maybe not necessarily the one that would have been first to come to mind to someone who was fired up about getting more involved in the political process. The machinations of how candidates actually do the day-to-day fundraising, I imagine, was not what you anticipated working on. But indeed, it was the frustration I was experiencing. And, and you've done some tremendous work to help candidates like myself, now many hundreds of them across the country, Democrats from presidential campaigns down to school board, everything in between, fundraise smarter because of it. So why don't you actually tell us a little bit about how it is that you do that? What is the work that you do with regards to fundraising and tackling data as it pertains to donor data? Yeah, that's a really good place to start. So I imagine that some of our listeners are already familiar with what Call Time does, but just to give them the data lens of what we're up to, Candidates come to us with lists of potential donors, all of their contacts. They give us their names and whatever other identifying information they have. And they feed those lists into call time. And we, within a few seconds, we detect all of the political histories, the political donation histories of their contacts. And we build donor profiles for each of the names on their lists. And we then ascribe certain scores and ask amounts and do a bunch of data science and modeling to help them better prioritize their outreach. So that's sort of like the high level of what we do with regards to data. But some of the specifics are fairly challenging. So like one of the things we have to do is to actually go out and collect all of that data. Now, this data, it, it doesn't live out in the wild and it's just ready to be plucked by us, right? Like it's, it's fairly messy data and it lives in lots of different databases and in archives. And we have to go and identify that data and then standardize it, normalize it, actually clean it up in a way that makes sense for call time. That's a fairly laborious process. You can imagine you know, over a hundred different databases. So this, this, this is sort of like how we start even collecting all of that data. And once you've actually accomplished collecting the data, although I know you've never quite accomplished it. It's an ongoing and a never-ending adventure. But when you have the data on hand, what are some of the challenges beyond just actually having the data on hand? Yeah, so when we even just collect that data, it lives in lots of different formats, lots of different types. For example, like some sources only give it to us in PDF form. Other ones give it to us in Excel spreadsheets. Other ones want to fax us the data. <laughs> so we first just collect all that data and then we standardize it. And then once it all lives in one place, then we begin the task of searching for actual individuals, right? So the problem is that almost every one of the archives at the moment is not indexed by a specific donor. It's all indexed by the specific contribution. So you can't just go and look for one person and it will give you every single donation given by that one person. And that problem is compounded if you just think about all the different databases that exist. And so the challenge is really trying to search through all those different databases and put together a coherent profile for a single individual. 
So that, that's, that process is called entity resolution. And it really just originates from the fact that there is no universal donor identifier that ties together donors across those different databases. It's like when you're reporting a contribution given to your campaign, you never actually have to report the social security number, for example. So it's not like anybody looking at those databases would be able to tell which contributions were given by a specific donor. And you can imagine that I mean, like a trivial solution to this problem would just be to look for all the people with the same name. But you can imagine people with similar names, people change their names, people move, uh, people misspell their names, some people report their spouses as also donors on the exact same contribution. It's kind of shocking to me because from our perspective, right, we're collecting and helping folks look at this data for one particular reason. But you can imagine that there are a lot of reasons why someone would take a look at this data. There's a reason why it's public in the first place, right? There's sort of good government reason to ensure that there's a way for the public to evaluate the behaviors of elected officials and candidates and kind of hold that up to the contributions they've received in the past and see if they believe that there's sort of undue influence from one over the other. There's actual regulations and laws in place, right? So someone can't in a lot of jurisdictions give to any one candidate in one cycle above a certain amount. And so being able to keep track of the multiple gifts that person has made and knowing that they're all coming from the actual same person is important. And then there's academic research that's done on these data sets or attempted to be done on these data sets all the time to get some insight into the practices of donors and how that influences public policy. It's just any number of reasons why you might want to look at this data. It seems almost all of those reasons would demand the ability to distinguish one donor from the next rather than just one contribution from the next. And yet it's not actually how this data is set up. That was certainly news to me to discover that. And, and I think it's been amazing to see what you've done to have to overcome that. Yeah, it's, it's quite a challenge. And that's especially true of names that are not too rare. I mean, have, have you ever looked up your own? I mean, Andrew Blumenfeld, it's, it's, it's not a very common name. And there are others. I've done it. <laughs> there are other donors named Andrew Blumenfeld who are not me. And it's, it's, you were mentioning it a moment ago, but it's, there's also many layers through which this process occurs where there can either be errors or changes, right? If I'm Andrew Blumenfeld and I'm making the contribution, the campaign often is going to first and foremost rely on me self-reporting my own information first to the campaign with my contribution. And how I report that could be different. There's no reason to, there's not, nothing to stop me from one time reporting myself as Andrew Blumenfeld and another time reporting myself as AJ Blumenfeld. My occupation could change or the way I describe it could change. I could move and so my location could be different. And that's just all coming from me. Then the campaign itself actually takes that and it has the responsibility of doing some second, you know, collecting it and reporting it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's quite a thing to imagine. And of course, I mean, and I'll let you describe more about it now because I'm kind of going off here about the, the enormity of the challenge, but, but you obviously have done quite a bit of work to make sure that when you're looking at the data, there's something happening beyond just the straight query of someone's name, because as we're talking about here, that would be insufficient. If all you ever did was just search for Andrew Blumenfeld, you would return very inaccurate data. You'd find data that did not belong to me that you thought did, and you might miss data that did belong to me that you didn't realize, right? So what do you do to overcome that? In a way, you have to teach the computer to become a detective of sorts. So you're simply piecing together the different lines of evidence. 
and you're guiding the computer and helping it make the most educated assessment of whether or not two contributions were actually given by the same donor. So you look at lots of different things, right? So like one of those things would be how far away are those two contributors? How far away do they live? Do they work in similar occupations? So you can imagine that a lawyer and a judge might be a little bit closer in occupation space than a lawyer and a dentist. Are there nicknames that are not too far away, like Thomas and Tommy? We can make some probabilistic case about two contributors actually being the same donor if they share a nickname and then also a bunch of other things seem to line up. One more thing that we looked at is occupations and employers. And very often people who misspell their occupation will do it more than one time. (laughs) And so as opposed to just cleaning up and standardizing to the correct spelling, sometimes looking for those anomalies is suggestive of two contributors being the same person. Oh, interesting. So if I'm a lawyer and I make multiple contributions and the first time I submit my occupation as being an attorney, but with a single T, and then three months later, I make a different contribution. And this time I report my occupation as attorney with a single T. You're saying that the there's some machine learning about, well, that's the same kind of misspelling that happened from someone with the same name living in the same place. And so maybe that is actually the same person who made the same mistake twice. Absolutely. I don't know the statistics on it. I, I, we looked it up one time, or at least I saw the number of attorneys who spelled it with a single T, and it was staggering. Not sure I would be hiring an attorney who doesn't know how to spell attorney, but I guess that's for a different conversation. Right, right. <laughs> so I guess so, so. at that point, what the computer does is it, it weighs all of this evidence and then makes some educated assessment about whether two contributions were given by the same person. But you can imagine that this is fraught with challenges and with problems because the computer is, is bound to get it wrong. And it, it's bound to get it wrong because it's very often just, it doesn't have access to the complete space of information that a person might have. So like one of the things that, that we're seeing is, let's say we see two contributors, one is Tom, the other is Thomas. The computer says, you know, I don't think it's the same person. And then we hear from a customer and the customer says, oh, listen, I know Tom and Thomas. It's the same person. Just trust me on this. Then if we weigh Tom and Thomas more heavily because a campaign had told us to, we are bound to hear back from another customer who says, I have this donor named Tom. And all of a sudden, I see all of their contributions being polluted by this other dude named Thomas. You got to make sure that you're separating those. And what we need to do is then be consistent and just sort of toe this this line that upsets the least amount of people and is the most true to the data that we have available. And I know we'll talk more about this throughout our conversation, but I think one of the things I always think about as sort of the not data person, the just kind of lay (laughs) practitioner, fundraiser person in the mix, that I often think about it not just in terms of how accurate it is, although obviously it's very important to me as a practitioner that it be very accurate. But when I'm thinking about these trade-offs, I do think about it in in not absolute terms, but in kind of as compared to human terms. Because in some ways, what you're describing is exactly the same practice that a human would go through. If I were a call time manager, a finance assistant, if I was doing my own hand research, I would undoubtedly encounter this exact same problem, right? There would be times where I typed in and queried the name Tommy, and so therefore I missed all the Thomases. 
And there would be times where I said, well, let me also search for Thomas. So now I'm including them. But now I have to make a judgment call by just sort of eyeballing it and saying, well, do I think that Thomas is that Tommy? Well, they seem to have the, they from the same city. Oh, well, that's kind of a big city. So it's probably not enough that there are, is a Tommy and a Thomas both in Los Angeles. That's probably pretty common. You know, I'm making all these judgments. And so on the one hand, the benefit, aside from just the speed of having a machine do this for you, which is obviously probably the biggest benefit, is that at least the machine is pursuing this in some ways kind of sans bias, right? It's not going to sometimes err on this side and sometimes err on that side. It's sort of mathematically and systematically approaching this problem that is exactly the kind of problem that a human approaches, but maybe a little with a little less of a gut check piece component to it. Right. And that could work in its favor or against it. So for, for example, like one of the things that, that's fairly easy to do is to, to figure out nicknames with common American names. But as soon as you stumble on names that are a little bit more rare, you might miss out on the fact that, that they happen to be nicknames. Somebody who knows the person might say, oh yeah, I know that that's how they spell their name. This is an, an alternate spelling of their name or this is a nickname. A computer might miss that if it's not fed the right kind of data set to learn from. Right, right. But it's, it's also interesting because it's never really the case that the computer is not intelligent enough, right? It is extremely intelligent and it's intelligent and it's accurate. It's just doing that on a much more limited data set sometimes than people have access to. So it can, it is shining a light on a trove of data, but there's a bunch of data that is still in the darkness and the computer just has no ability to access that. One of the things that I've seen is that the, one of the jobs of a data scientist is to be able to paint a picture of those trade-offs. Because being able to fall along one spot in, in this trade-off diagram is, is different depending on an industry. So for example, the way that you speak about this in, in medical diagnosis is the comparison between being able to, to have true positive assessment versus distinguishing true negative assessment. Right, so if someone has a disease, you want a system to be sensitive to that disease. You want the system to be able to say, yes, this person actually has the disease, right? If you're taking a test for, just to be timely, the coronavirus, you want that test to be able to say, yes, this person has it if you actually have it. But one way I think about this is you can solve for that in a fairly simple and trivial way if whenever somebody comes up to you with a you know, that needs to be tested, you just immediately say they have the disease. Well, yeah, you're going to catch every single person that has the disease. They're also going to come out positive, right? But the problem at that point is that you're going to miss out on all of those people who don't have the disease and you incorrectly identified them as having the disease, right? So while you might be very good at being very sensitive to the presence of the disease, you're going to be very bad at specifying when a person has it and when a person doesn't. It's the exact same situation that we're dealing with when we try to match two contributions to the same donor. Do they actually match? If we overmatch, that's one type of error. If we undermatch, that would be another type of error. And I think one of the things that I have always felt was the better side to err on, and I think we've certainly thought about this when it comes to the data sets that we work with, is probably undermatching, right? Is that when you're dealing with fundraising, you're actually making a one-on-one -on -one solicitation. You're having a one-on-one -on -one interaction 
the candidate having a conversation with the donor or the prospective donor looking at contextual data in front of them to help inform that conversation. Obviously, the best case scenario is they're looking at 100% accurate data. They're not looking at data that doesn't belong, and they're not missing any data that does belong. But I think in our context, one of the things we've always focused on is, okay, well, if there's going to be an error, it actually should be to undermatch because it could be more problematic to be having a conversation with a donor where you're relying on data that turns out to be wrong and saying, oh, you know, I, I know you really care about the environment because you gave $20,000 to to the Sierra Club last year. And that turns out not to be true. That was somebody else with the same name who gave $20,000 versus missing that information altogether and just not bringing up their environmental views. So a missed opportunity maybe, but not necessarily sort of running into some sort of issue where you're presuming something that isn't true. And and I guess that's how we've thought about it for this particular space because it is so individual. But I guess as a broader matter in politics and beyond politics, that's not the only way we have to look at it, right? There may be circumstances even within politics where that level of sensitivity and making the trade-off to sometimes undermatch rather than overmatch is not the calculation, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think one of the reasons that we thought about it in the way that you just described is from your experience with campaigns, like you've seen just how intimate and personal that interaction is on the phone. But there are situations, even in politics, there are certain types of outreach that are not nearly as personal. If you're sending out flyers, right, or mailers, like in, in those situations, it might not be as, as big a deal if you happen to not be as sensitive or as specific. So we've been talking a lot about the collection of data. We've been talking a lot about the sort of, I'll call it cleaning of data so that we know what we're looking at and we can kind of provide that data to folks in a way that is as accurate and reliable as possible. But you do something more than that, right? You take that data, you do more than just sort of resolve it and clean it. You also build on top of it. You build donor scores and recommendations for ask amounts that is a project of machine learning, right? So can you describe for us a little bit about the process by which you have gone about developing those machine learning components that live on top of this massive data set? Yeah, absolutely. So machine learning is a strategy for achieving artificial intelligence. The .ai in call time, .ai, that piece is trying to mimic intelligence that you see outside of the world of computer systems, right? So like when you normally think about AI, it's almost like a constellation of different associations at this point. You have like smart machines and smart robots and, and autonomous cars and the ability to recognize speech and meaning behind speech. But what is the common thread among all of those is really just the ability to mimic intelligence or to mimic rational thought in some way. And one of the things that we are then trying to do with those scores and with those ask amounts is to mimic the intelligence of a finance director or whoever it is that would have been parsing through all of that data in the first place. And normally what they do is they look at a bunch of data that they have available and they're then able to make some assessment about, okay, well, how likely are those donors to contribute to my campaign? And if they are to contribute to the campaign, how much money should I expect to raise from them? And the difference then is that the finance director has access to a much more limited data set in some situations than our computers do, right? So 
our computers can then sift through hundreds of millions of contributions, 20 million donors, and then look at the pattern of contributions over several, spanning over several decades, and being able to then make some assessment about how likely a donor is to actually contribute. Now, that isn't to say that when the computer does it, it is infallible, right? It is only as good as the data that you fed into it. And what finance directors very often have, or the people working on the campaigns have, they have access to the types of data that we simply don't have access to. But so given all of the data that we do have, there's then a variety of techniques for teaching a computer how to interpret that data and find, basically find the relationship between a bunch of different inputs in a single output. So maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what machine learning even is. It's really, machine learning is, is a solution to the mapping problem. So the way to think about the mapping problem is you have inputs and you're trying to predict an output. So if you look at it from like a tabular form, like in a Google spreadsheet or Excel, you have a bunch of different columns and those are inputs and you're trying to find the output, which is another column, right? So you have all these inputs, all these different columns, and you're trying to map them onto a single output so that you can predict it given new inputs. Now, finding that mapping function, that function that maps from all of those columns to one more column that you want to predict, can be very simple in some situations, right? So like, let's say we try to map the number of minutes given a number of hours, right? So that's a very simple mapping function. So you have one hour maps to 60 minutes, and then two hours map to 120 minutes, and the function itself looks very simple. You give me whatever number of hours and I'll just multiply it by 60 and I'll get at the number of minutes. So that's a very simple, that's, a, that's easy. You don't need machine learning for that, right? You could just write out the equation and everybody knows it. But in the real world, it is very often extremely difficult to find that mapping function. Sometimes that mapping function doesn't actually exist in that form. And so what you have to do is find some ways to approximate what that mapping function might be. And there's a variety of ways to do that. This is what machine learning is. Machine learning is a way to try to approximate what the mapping function is between a collection of inputs and a predicted output. And one way of doing that is to simply give many, many examples to the computer and, and sort of guide the computer to learn by example, right? So the computer is seeing all these inputs go to this output. All these inputs go to that output. And they just keep repeating that process many, many, in our case, millions of times until the computer is feeling somewhat comfortable saying, okay, well, this is the mapping function. Now give me new inputs and I will predict an output. So like in, in the case of call time, the inputs might be things like how much money has the donor already given the cycle? What is the partisanship level of a specific donor? How much have they already given to this campaign? And so all of these are just different inputs. And what we're trying to predict is things like if the donor is to give money to this campaign, how much money would they give? That's sort of the, the machine learning aspect of it, is doing something like that. I guess there's, there's one more interesting thing to say here that is very often you don't want to feed all of the data that you have to the computer. You sort of like keep some of the data concealed. You keep it away so that you can then use it after you trained the computer to learn the mapping function. Then you expose all of that data that you were hiding and you test how well the computer learned that mapping function. And you can do a variety of tests this way. 
And then you find that one mapping function, that one machine learning model that performed the best. And that's the one that you end up picking and that's the one that we expose to our customers. But even then, it's always limited to the kind of data that we fed into the model in the first place, right? So there's a bunch of data that is simply inaccessible to us, like whether the candidates saw the donor at the supermarket earlier that day. There's no way that the computer has access to that data. It can't learn about that data. It doesn't have enough examples to teach the computer about that data. So it's inherently limited in that way. It sort of makes me think about the relationship that has to happen and form in some sort of futuristic sense between human and machine, that it would be wrong, it sounds like from what you're saying, to totally defer to machine learning to say, oh, this replaces all the judgment and expertise and insight that I have to bring to bear on this question, in our case, what the propensity of this person to donate is and what amount they are likely to donate. And it would also be wrong, I think, right, to say, well, I, I don't need any of that. I know what I'm talking about. I know everything there is to know about these donors. And, you know, no machine could possibly teach me anything more than I already know. That unsurprisingly, there's some sort of relationship that has to form and probably being thoughtful about when to be a little more deferential to one the machine or the other, the human, is probably a kind of skill that needs to continue to proliferate in the political space and in any space that's going to continue to rely on data. I'm thinking, for example, of the person you just said, right? If I know, hey, we just saw this person in the supermarket yesterday and they had a great conversation, that's data that in that instance the campaign has that the machine does not have. And it might only be one data point compared to the millions of data points the machine has, but it may be an incredibly relevant and important one. And so you might want to lean pretty heavily into it and say, forget the recommendation or let me calibrate a little bit up or down from the recommendation of the machine based upon this input I have. But then on the flip side, you probably have a whole lot of folks that you're interacting with that you know little or nothing about, right? All you know is what you can go out there in the world and from afar collect. And in that sense, you're probably far inferior at doing that than a machine is, and probably also far inferior than at your ability to mass calculate as quickly as a computer can what all of that data means. So I guess there's there's some question there I'm curious your thoughts on about just how you imagine the relationship being and the sort of trade-offs that happen between the judgment and expertise and data that is brought to bear by the human versus that of the machine. Yeah, I think it's really about catering to the strengths of each one. So computers are very good at certain things and people are good at other things. And so long as we are able to distribute the work in such a way that caters to our strengths, I think that will make for the best team. So like computers are really good at, at sifting through massive volumes at you know, light speed in a way that would simply be ungodly for any human to attempt, right? And so for those situations where you have to just sift through all of that data and make some assessment, you should leave that to the computer. Now, the computer is also limited in that it can only really sift through the data that you fed it. A human has special access to lots of data points that the computer very often doesn't have. And more than that, Humans then have the ability to use their intuition to weigh the relative importance of these data points, right? The fact that 
the person on your list is actually the cousin of the candidate might be extremely important. At that point, what you want to do is you want the campaign to then rely on their own intuition because just recognizing the fact that they have special access to that type of data. But I guess some campaigns then have special access to more pieces of data like the ask amount that we're providing or the score that we're providing. And they then have to incorporate that in as one more data point to use in there and how they run their outreach. Yeah, and I think there's a very human component to all of this that persists. It just evolves in the face of having the power of machine learning as just one of many, to your point, data points that someone has. If I were a finance director and I had some intuition about what I thought someone's capacity was or what I thought their likeliness to give was, and I saw that the machine learning was giving me something that was very at odds with that intuition, it would actually be sort of a welcome opportunity to test what my assumptions were and to better understand what the data set is that I'm leaning on to make those assumptions, not to say which one is right or which one is wrong, but to sort of force the reevaluation. And I guess kind of another human example that comes to mind is The machine is very disciplined in the sense that you were talking about inputs versus outputs. It is concerned religiously with what the output is, in our instance, a donor's likelihood to give and at what level, whereas a smart finance director is probably also concerned with a few other things, including, for example, well, let me put this person on the candidate's list to start with, because it's not going to be a lot of money, but it's going to be a super positive conversation that's going to lift the morale of the room and is going to put us on track to have a much more productive call time that lasts an hour or two longer than if we just start with the more difficult or the kind of the more cold conversation. So there's also a human element that the humans in the room are being mindful of because they're also, to, you know, I think you said they're they're weighing the relevant value through their intuition of various data points. And they also can have kind of competing goals that may be very worthy goals, not just, you know, what is the highest dollar output I can get at every moment and a machine for better or for worse is myopically focused on that question. You can imagine a future where all of that is also data to be mined in that a computer could at some point optimize for the best experience of doing call time. You know, first you line up all of those donors who would make the candidate feel the best and then just gradually make it a little bit more challenging but potentially more rewarding. So there is a future where that is conceivable. We're still not there. Well, we'll definitely have you back to talk with us when we get there and also probably a few steps along the way. But I'll leave it there and just thank you so much for giving us some insight into what can sometimes feel like a black box, you know, data. We just kind of we see a, a number, we see a score, we see some data. We, But it is no black box. It's actually in a lot of instances, Adam <laughs> toiling away at some pretty thoughtful and some pretty intelligent data engineering. So thanks for helping us better understand that, Adam. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the CallTime AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at CallTime AI. <laughs>